0: It's North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have part four of our series on the book of Revelation entitled The End of the World as We Know It. Today's message is. Revelation chapter 6 and 7, and the title of this message is Here Comes Trouble, Where we're looking at some of the difficult things that that begin to take place with the opening of the scroll. So, let's go ahead and head to the talk. Thanks for listening. North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Last week... We talked about Revelations chapter 5 and uh, 4 and 5, which, um, man, wasn't that cool? It was just, it, it's, it's the, one of the most amazing passages on worship in the entire Bible. We get, this, we get this picture of God seated on the throne, and there's these four living creatures uh, that, that represent all of creation giving their praise to God. These 24 elders that represent uh, the church, uh, the, the, the both covenants. And they're all praising God. And then in the midst of this amazing worship service, one of these angels yells out, who's worthy to open the scroll? And it gets quiet. It's just kind of weird because they've just been singing God's praises and singing how he's holy and worthy. But all of a sudden, an angel says, who's, who's worthy to open the seal? The seal is God's plans for, uh, the, God's salvation plan for, for the world. Who's worthy to open it? And it gets quiet. And it says, John he began to weep bitterly because nobody was found in heaven that could that was worthy to open the scroll. And then when the elders tells John he says, "But wait, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy. He has triumphed." But here's one of those first pictures that we see in revelations where John hears something and then he turns and he sees something very different from what he was expecting. He hears Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. But when John turns to see this ferocious, fierce lion, what he sees instead is a lamb slain. And this is one of the big themes of the book of Revelation, that that Jesus, that that God doesn't conquer by meeting violence with violence, by meeting hate with hate, by meeting evil with evil. He conquers... Through self-sacrificial love. And it's at this revelation of Jesus as the Lamb who was slain that all of heaven just explodes in worship. This worship service that was 24 elders and 4 living creatures, now it spills over to encompass uh, all the angels of heaven. Everybody on earth, every created thing begins to worship God together at the revelation that Jesus has conquered not with might and power, but through the laying down of his life. Lamb power. <laughs> and that's a big theme for the book. And I, I want to tell you, the book's going to get very dark for the next 16 chapters. And we're going to try to cover them quickly. But here's the deal. If you don't understand Revelation 4 and 5, you're going to end up with some pictures of God that I, I don't believe are true. True. Um, there are some people who actually believe that Jesus is going to come back and and actually kill people with a sword by the millions, you know, and, and gonna, but but we mustn't lose focus of this lamb that was slain. As I said last week, the lamb that was slain, he is worthy. Why? Because his love and humility match his strength and power. We've always known God to be almighty and strong and powerful. Nobody's disputed that. But in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, in the cross, we see that this God who is almighty sets aside everything to step into our world and reveal what God is truly like. He takes the worst that we have coming against us. And so it's going to be a little weird to be ripped from this this heavenly worship th- service into what now becomes these apocalyptic visions where, you know, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're going to come across some imagery that you may be familiar with if you've grown up in church, but you've probably even encountered it in the, in the culture if you haven't even grown up in church. But one thing I want to say before we get into um, these, these next few chapters is this. Uh, we are going to see judgment the judgment of God, God is going to be judging the empires, the principalities, and the powers of this world. Um, but but here's the way God judges things. A lot of people have this picture of God, like he's he's got this smite button. <laughs> you know, you seen, there's a Far Side cartoon where where God's up in heaven, and he's got this button that says smite. <laughs> he's looking down and you know smite that dude. You know, um, here's the deal: God doesn't judge people as an action, God's judgment is when he takes his hands away. So, so for instance, look at the prodigal son parable. The son in that story uh, is rebelling against his father. He wants his whole inheritance. He, his father, knowing that this young man's probably going to do something stupid with this, gives him his inheritance and lets the son go. What happens to the son? He spends all his inheritance on money and women and wine, and uh, it's a great big party until he runs out of money. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. And, and, and all of a sudden, his friends are all gone. The, the, there's a famine in the land. He's forced to get a job that no uh, self-respecting Jewish boy would get. He's working at a pig farm, and he ends up at the bottom of this pig trough desiring the food that the pigs are eating. That's the judgment of sin. Was the father judging him? No. The judgment was contained in the sin itself. And here's the deal, that, 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 that's the way the judgment, so when we see these things in Revelation that look so horrible, understand this is God saying, I'm going to reveal the powers of this world for what they actually are, because this is one of the big themes of Revelation. Do we trust our lives to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who has conquered through laying his life down? Do we trust our lives to him, or do we trust our lives to the empire? because the empire seems even in that day in the early uh, in the early church it, there was the pax romana the roman peace everything looked like rome had had brought about peace but we forget how rome brought about peace right <laughs> Rome brought about peace at the edge of a sword. They brought about peace through peace through domination and coercion, through violence, through, through threats and intimidation. So at the time that the book of Revelation was written, there was actually a time of relative peace in the empire. As long as you didn't say anything against Rome. But what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is God is taking his hands off. God is saying, okay, if this is what you want, we're going to let you have it. We're going to let you, if you're hell-bent on going down this road, then we're going to let you go down this road, and the judgment is going to be contained in the very sin itself. We are going to see that Rome self-destructs under its own weight of violence, under its own economy, under all these things that, that people have praised and bought into. We're going to see Rome revealed as this thing that's not strong at all. It's shaky, it's naked, it's ashamed. It's broken down. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about. Will we trust our lives to Jesus or trust them to the empire? Have you seen that show, uh, what is it called, Intervention? Anybody seen that? Any ever? You may have been part of an in- intervention before. <laughs> uh, I've been a part of an intervention once or twice. Uh, maybe you've had people intervene in your life. Um the whole deal with the, the, that show, Intervention, is you get, you get the family and friends and loved ones of a person who's got a, a serious addiction, and their life is out of control, and what do they do? They all get together on the same page, and they tell that addicted person, they set them down and say, look, we're concerned because we love you, and you're destroying your life, and we just want you to know if you want help, we're going to help you out. We will do anything we can to help you get a plan to get out of that. But, but here's what's going to stop. We're not going to enable you any longer. We're not going to allow you to manipulate our relationships because we're all on the same page right now. And, and we're bringing everything out in the open. And So if you want help, we're going to help you. But if you, if you don't want help, we are not going to enable you to destroy your life any longer. And I think that's a good picture about what God's doing God's judgment is really, okay, if you're, if, if you're determined to do this, if you receive my offers for mercy and love and, and reconciliation, if you're hell-bent on going the other way, then finally uh, I'm not going to enable you any longer. I'm going to take my hands off. And so that's what we see in the judgments of God in Revelation. Now, I, I mentioned this last week. This is apocalyptic language. So it's not meant to be read literally the way that you would read normal books. It was an actual genre that existed at that time that doesn't exist today. And things were communicated through vivid symbols and, and they're scary symbols, okay? <laughs> but Jesus says in the beginning of Revelation, don't be afraid, for I've overcome this all. So one thing I have noticed as a pastor, and and I've been in ministry, I don't know, a long time, 15, 20 years, something like that, in various capacities. I've noticed something about human beings, myself included. Oftentimes, when it comes to issues, issues in our lives, whether it's marriage problems or financial problems or dental problems <laughs> or health problems, we put that stuff off sometimes, huh? Anybody done that before? I find oftentimes, as a pastor, people come to me. They don't come to me like early on in their marriage when they're having little arguments about hand towels and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they come to me when, when things are on the brink of collapse. People don't look for financial counseling a lot of times when, when they don't, they're not uncomfortable. It's when things get kind of desperate. They're, they're like, oh my goodness, we've got to change here. But the deal is to, to actually make a change in your, in your marriage or your finances, or say it's an addiction... It's going to get ugly before it gets good. <laughs> Any of you in here who have, who've ever overco- who, who are in a recovery, you, you've overcome an addiction, you, you know that it, 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 it has to get very ugly before it gets good. In, in the 12 steps of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, most of that, because if you're an addict, You often think the addiction is about the thing you're addicted to, like uh, if I can just, you know, and you try to stop drinking or try to stop doing drugs, and you think that that's the issue. But really, when you get into recovery, you realize that that's not even the issue at all. The issue is that you got all this stuff in your heart that goes way back, sometimes to your childhood. You've got entrenched ways of doing things the issue is you've destroyed a lot of people in your wake. And so a program like, you know, AA is 12 Steps. Going through that, you have to face the destruction that you've caused. You've got to own up to it. you got to get down to some of those wounds on the inside. you got to, things have to get out in the open. And that's a painful, ugly process. We don't like to see that. If you've ever tried to get your finances right, and, and, and all of a sudden you look at how you're spending your money, ah, Nobody shout me down now. You know, it's ugly. It's ugly when you realize how much money you're just throwing away on things that don't matter sometimes. But it's got to get ugly before it gets good. If we just gloss over the problems of this world, it's a false peace. And so what we're going to see in these coming very vivid images that are, that are coming forth is God is taking his hands off and he is letting the problem be seen for what it actually is. He's taking his hands off, but this judgment is not meant for his followers, though we will be uh, in the middle of it. Judgment is meant for the principalities, the powers of this world that have enslaved humanity. As N.T. Wright says, For too long, over the last century at least, mainline Western churches have held the wounds of the human race lightly, declaring peace, peace, when there is no peace except for at the superficial level. We have been unwilling to look below the surface and see the dark forces at work, but if God's new creation is to be brought to birth, the deepest ills of the old must be exposed and allowed to come out and dealt with. So this morning we're going to look into two chapters, chapter uh, six and seven. Can somebody give me an outline just so I can, I meant to get one myself, okay, thanks. I'll give it back, I promise. Um. <laughs> so here we have Jesus is worthy to open the seven seals of this scroll, which is God's plan for salvation. And these seven seals are basically things that have been holding back God's plan of salvation for the earth. So every time a seal opens, uh, it's, it's something bad. <laughs> and and, and, and it's, it's judgment. So we see in these two chapters, we see seven seals. And then coming up after that, a few chapters down the road, we're going to see seven trumpets. Uh, And then a little bit down the road from that, we're going to see seven bowls of wrath. And basically, this is not to be thought of linearly. These are not sequential events. This is basically uh, symbolically the bad stuff that's been happening in the world since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the judgment on the kingdoms of this world. And... um, These seven seals, seven bowls, and seven trumpets, they're all saying the same thing, but from different vantage points, okay? So it it helps you to understand that. So, y'all ready? Buckle your your seatbelts. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. My goodness, I never thought I'd teach on this. Okay. So in chapter 6, verse 1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say... In a voice like thunder, come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a, held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Um, the fir- first horse of the Apocalypse, and these aren't literal horses, by the way, okay? <laughs> this is just Symbolic. This, this represents the, the kings of this world who go out conquering. Some people have thought that this represented Jesus because in chapter 19, verse 1, Jesus will be seen riding on a horse. But what, what Revelation does a lot of times is it offers the, the parody or the mockery of, of the things of God, and then it shows the real. So we see the, the, the prostitute of Rome or, or Babylon is a mockery of the bride of Christ. Uh, this is the same thing. Uh, this this rider on this horse, he's going out to make war. So this is the kingdoms of the world uh, making war. When the lamb opened up the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Again, the phrasing sounds like... like this angel's making people kill each other. It's really the removal of a false peace. Uh, remember what happened with Iraq? Um, Saddam Hussein, as soon as he was overthrown, um, these these factions that had been at peace with each other began killing each other. The Shiites, the Sunnis, the um, Kurds. You know, under Saddam Hussein, nobody fought because... If you got out of line with Saddam, he'd kill you. But it was a false peace. It was kind of like the Pax Romana. When Saddam is taken out of power, then all of a sudden, since that wasn't a true peace that was based on true reconciliation of relationships, that false peace is taken away, people begin to kill each other. And we're seeing that in the world today. That's the red horse. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked. And before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like the voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. The black horse represents economic problems. Um, The economic problems which so often lie at the root of violence within and between nations. Ordinary commodities like uh, the staple diet of poor people shoot up in prices while the luxury items like oil and wine stay the same, allowing the rich once more to get richer at the expense of the poor. Again, this is something that was happening in the first century, but we see it happening in our world today. There's all kinds of places in the world where the commodity prices Because of the empires of this world, the commodity prices are going up and down, uh, but the the rich are getting richer, the poor are, are, are still in a desperate spot in many places. When the lamb opened up the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind him, and they were given power of the fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Uh, the pale horse carrying death on its back, and with Hades, the abode of the dead behind it, as a personified creature falling behind it, is the ultimate threat of every evil tyrant. That's the threat that, that everybody from the Caesar of Rome to Saddam Hussein, and you know everybody in between, that's their ultimate threat, death. And so, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, and, and, and I believe this, this meant something greatly to the early church, but I think symbolically, these things have been playing out ever since then, and, and they will play out until the ultimate return of Jesus uh, at the end, which we will get to. Y'all with me still? I know, I know this is, uh, uh, thanks, thanks, I appreciate it. <laughs> Verse 9, when he opened up the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. You know that word testimony? It comes from the Greek word martyr. Um, You know, martyr didn't mean dying initially. It got its name dying, kind of like the apocalypse became... You know, if you look up the apocalypse in the dictionary, it just means the end of the world. But I said a few weeks ago, it has nothing to do with the end of the world in the original language. It's just the unveiling. Um, that word that is translated witness, uh, it, it's martyr. And, and it, it got the connotation of someone who dies of their faith because of Christians who were killed. So I saw in the altar, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord? How, Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. (laughs) So there's these, these, the first martyrs in the church... Are already up in heaven they're under the throne their souls are in a sense this is hard to imagine okay um, but they are seeing the opening of these seals they're seeing where everything is going and they're crying out how long until till you avenge our blood how long that's the cry we hear all the way throughout psalms you know there's all these psalms. how long god how long are you going to let the bad guys win and the good guys lose when are we going to see justice here and god's word to them is hang on put on a white robe, (laughs) get comfortable. Uh, It's going to be a while. In fact, it's going to get uglier. More people are going to die. Not just bad guys, but good guys. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair and the whole moon turned blood red and the stars And the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth... The princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slaves and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Follow on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is where it gets scary. It sounds like the whole universe is coming apart at the seams here, right? Um, but, but again... This is apocalyptic imagery. This is not a literal, like, like all the laws of physics are going to cease to maintain. and the uh, This is a literal thing. In the Old Testament, language about the sun turning black and the moon becoming like blood, and the stars falling from heaven, and so on, was regularly employed as a way of speaking about what we could call earth-shattering events. What are some earth-shattering events in our lifetime? Uh the terrorist attacks on 9-11, um, the falling of the Berlin Wall, the, the Old Testament, the prophets would use this kind of imagery that's very vivid and, and, and over the top to explain things that, that were very important, earth-shattering events, events that it's hard to find appropriate language for except with vivid symbol and metaphor. So we should see the fresh revelation given by the undoing of the sixth seal as a time of huge political and social turbulence resulting in a scene uh, which many people, including Hosea and, and Hosea 10.8, had described. Those we call the great and the good and many more besides are thrown into a sudden panic. They realize that they are entirely at the mercy of God who rules the world. So we see these judgments kind of happening. And, and here's the deal. There's a lot of parallels between, and we're going to see this a little bit later in the book of Revelation, a lot of parallels between these judgments and these plagues, these signs and wonders, and the ones that, that Moses did with, with Pharaoh in the Exodus story. And there's times where, where towards the end of the signs where Pharaoh starts realizing, okay, God's behind this, but but his heart, he, he keeps relenting. He realizes he's opposing God and he keeps changing his mind. We see that happening by this seal that that ultimately the people in this world realize that they're at the mercy of God and so they they begin to hide themselves from it now we come to this weird term of the lamb's anger that just sounds funny you know the lamb's <laughs> the wrath of the lamb it's it's a, it's a it's a weird image but here's what i want to say about the, the lamb's Anger. Um, the lamb's anger is the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that is unloving. The only people who should be afraid of it are those who are determined to resist the call of love. Again, if you if you refuse the love of God, if you refuse God's mercy and and, and chase after your own destructive way, eventually you're going to get it. So even the anger of the Lamb, we have to anchor it in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, everything that we see in the Gospels. And I will tell you, as as crazy as Revelation looks, there's no disconnect from the Jesus of Revelation and the Jesus of the Gospels. Same guy. Remember that. Because a lot of people will tell you different. Chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Who is this 144,000? Well, it's, it's uh, actually, this is language of, a, of, a, of an army census that they would do back in the Old Testament. They would take uh, 12,000 people from each tribe. There was actually a hope that, that they would actually have an army of 144,000 that would follow the Messiah to conquer the Gentiles, the ones who had been conquering Israel. So that was the expectation of the Jewish people. But remember that, that, that part of Revelation where, where John hears a lion, and he turns to look at the lion, and he sees the lamb? Well, that same thing happens here. John is, in, is, is inviting us to overturn our ideas, because then it goes on in verse 13, Uh, In verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, so John hears this voice. There's a, there's a census being taken. To, to There's 144,000 representing every tribe of Israel. And that, that is language of that time to say, this is the army that's going to back up the Messiah. But when John turns to see the army, because he hears one thing, but then when he turns to see it, he sees that it's not 144,000 at all. It's not 144,000 Jews. It's people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. This thing's big. And this goes back to the promises of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Follow me, Abraham, and I'm going to bless you, so you're going to be a blessing. Your descendants will be like the the stars of the heavens, like the sands of the sea. Innumerable. John is seeing the fulfillment of this. Is it because the church is is really big at that time in history? No. (laughs) But he's getting a glimpse of where this thing's going. These are the ones who have overcome. And guess what? They're not fighting a physical war the way that people were expecting at that time to to fight with the Messiah. These people were actually holding palm branches instead of guns or or swords. And that's very reminiscent of when Jesus walked into Jerusalem. They laid palm branches down, and that's a sign of of proclaiming God's royalty. You're welcome, King of Glory, to come in. Y'all with me? I know it's a lot of stuff here, but it's good. <laughs> and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell down with their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We come finally to one of the... There's a particular... particular Popular view in our culture of the book of Revelation. It's been around about 150 years Dispensationalism this this kind of view hadn't existed in the history of Christianity up until about the mid-1800s But basically dispensationalism sees the the book of Revelation chopped up into various Dispensations or times of history and so um, It seeks to you know locate everything by decoding the symbols of Revelation Um, and so one of the big themes of dispensationalism is the Great Tribulation. It's this period that seemed to be uh, seemed to be like seven years, and a lot of people believe that the church will be raptured at the beginning of the Revelation. If you've ever read Left Behind or watched the movies, that's kind of how the world goes into chaos. Like all these Christians disappear and some of them are flying planes and things like that you know the, the world you take all the take a whole bunch of people out of the earth at once the earth descends into chaos and that's the great tribulation so the hope of many um pre-tribulation dispensationalists <laughs> is that that god will actually take the church out before things get bad and then it's actually the removal of the church that makes things Uh, go to hell in a handbasket, and so there's different views on when God's going to rapture people Um, but but one thing I want to say and this may be different from what you've heard but that's okay Um, you can hear things that are wrong Um. (laughs) number one um, what we see here if you just have a plain reading of this chapter is that God is not going to rescue his church from tribulation but through tribulation if we follow jesus and this is one of the main points of the book of revelation if you sincerely follow jesus if you refuse to bow down and worship the powers of this world if you pledge allegiance to jesus more than the flag of your country it may put you in a place where you get persecuted it may even lead to your death it may. And Jesus' words to the church, because that was a very real deal for them, by the way. I said this uh, on the week, first week that the, the fastest growing religion in the empire at that time was worship of the emperor. There were temples being set up everywhere. And it was like saying the Pledge of Allegiance at that time. You would go down to the temple, offer something to Caesar, and say, Caesar is Lord, and you could participate in the economy of Rome. And so the question for the early church was, are we going to participate? Are we going to pledge allegiance to Rome? Are we going to go along with, with giving sacrifice to the empire, to the emperor? Are we going to proclaim him to be a, a deity? Are we going to worship before him so that we can participate in the economy? Or are we going to trust our lives to Jesus even when it may mean our death? And Jesus is, what he tells the church over and over and over again is is trust me, even if it means dying. Because Jesus, the the lamb power, the, the central image in the book of Revelation is that Jesus has conquered the enemy by laying his life down. And as his followers, we are called to do the same. We are his army and we conquer not with the weapons of this world, but as it says in in Revelation chapter 12, they overcame him, the devil and all his plans by the blood of the lamb, what Jesus has already done, by the word of their testimony, testifying to the reality of Jesus and what he's done and that they didn't love their lives even unto death. You hear me? They didn't overcome Satan by boycotting, by picketing, by picking fights. They didn't overcome Satan by by fighting him with violence or fighting other people. They overcame through self-sacrificial love the same way that Jesus did. Because here's the deal. When Jesus died on the cross, you know what? He became a mirror to humanity. He revealed the ugliness in our heart. Here's what happens when God steps into your world. When God becomes incarnate and preaches a message that is simply love God and love people, what do humans do? We kill him. That's the ugliness in our hearts. We're so twisted by sin that we would kill God if he shows up. And Jesus hanging on a cross becomes a mirror reflecting the evil within humanity and the systems of this world. And last week we saw that, uh, has anybody seen that movie Selma, Martin Luther King Jr. movie? Oh, come on, folks, y'all got to go watch that. It's a good movie. <laughs> you went with me, that didn't count. Uh, there's this powerful scene in there where Martin Luther King Jr. is talking to President LBJ. And LBJ is trying to talk him out of marching in Selma. And, you know, can't you chill out with that civil rights stuff? We're going to get to that, but can't you chill on that? And Martin Luther King's like, No. We're going to keep doing it. Well, can I talk you out? No. And King goes back and he tells his people, he said, You know what? We're going to keep coming out here. Even if they beat us, even if they kill us, we're going to keep coming out because it's going to force America to have to look at the ugliness of what segregation is. It's going to reveal the ugliness of the, the, the entrenched racism in the hearts of people, when you have to see people. It's one thing to have beliefs, but when you have to go out there and you see people getting mowed down by folks uh, because of what they believe when they're not resisting violently, it becomes a mirror. And in the same way, Jesus is asking us, as his followers, we don't grab for power, we don't grab for violence, we don't try to, to, to grab for rights as if that's the most important thing we as Christians can do. No, we lay our rights down. We lay ourselves down. We love others even in the face of evil. We take the pattern of Jesus. Well, that's crazy. It is crazy. I don't like that part. Not a big fan of it. I mean, honestly, I'd much rather like fight and boycott. I would. It takes nothing to do that, though. It takes something very different to love your enemies and lay your lives down. But every time you do, every time you follow the pattern of Jesus, guess what? You expose the evil in this world. When we don't retaliate to others when we're attacked, when we forgive other people when we're wrong, when we seek peace, when we step beyond the boundaries of this world that of, of Republican and Democrat and rich and poor and All the issues of it, when we step beyond those boundaries, we reveal who Jesus is. And we reveal that we're not about these kingdoms of this world. We've come out of them. Because here's the deal the judgment isn't for the followers of Jesus. The judgment on the systems of this world is not for people who follow Jesus. We will go through it. But Jesus says, Don't worry, I've overcome. And even if you have to die for me, you will be vindicated just the same way that Jesus was vindicated. Easter morning, you know, Jesus laid his life down. It looked like he lost the battle. It looked like this was a miserable, failed enterprise. This poor little, poor teacher from uh, a redneck part of, <laughs> of, of, of Galilee led a band of 12 guys. One of them betrayed him. They all turned their backs on him in his, his darkest hour, and he gets, he gets brutally uh, murdered and tortured, executed, by the roman empire and the religious leaders of this day it looked like failure till easter morning and he was raised up by god brought back to life and this is the confidence that we have and this is where we must come down to yes you and i if we are going to seriously follow jesus we're all going to face tribulation it ain't going to be easy i promise i promise it's not going to be easy but that's the, that's the question that we're posed today. Will we trust our lives to Jesus and land power? Or will we grasp at the power of the empire, the powers of this world? And instead of resolving that, that's the question I'll leave you with today. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Yeah when are we going to do that message on seven steps to a successful happy life? <laughs> no, seriously. I know we don't, we, we don't live in a time where it's really hard reading the book of Revelation right now because, you know, we, we're not persecuted. You know, I read a... I forget her name. She was a freed black slave in the, in the 1800s. And, um, yeah, it's of truth. <laughs> and her critique of dispensational theology, when it started coming on the scene, she said, you know, people who worry about who the Antichrist is and the rapture and all that stuff, that's problems that, that, that people who are just real comfortable can do. You know, that's what <laughs> rich, white, middle class problems. You know, we're going to sit around and figure out who this guy and that is. And, and, and in a way... Those things distract us from the c- central message of Revelation, which is not about that. The message is will you follow Jesus no matter how difficult it gets? Will you follow? All right, that's all I got to say about it. Let's stand up. Let's finish this thing. Let's get on. <sighs> Thanks for the clap. <laughs> We're going to pray for clap starters today. We need more of them in this church. (laughs) I I wasn't saying that to get a... (laughs) Dang it, Shane. I forgot you were going to share with us today, huh? We'll do it next week. We're going to get Shane to share something about the ministry. You should have told me I forgot. Okay. Well, I'm going to pray for us this morning. God, I, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what your spirit is, is, is speaking to us. God, once again, we just we just want to admit, Lord, this ain't pretty. It ain't easy. Lord, we want to admit that your kingdom threatens us. And, Lord, it may seem impossible for us today to even step into this realm. But I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you, just by your grace and your truth, help everyone in here wrestle through these things in their own world, Lord. Everyone who's in here who is seeking to follow you, wrestle through these issues on their own. And, and God, I pray you would lead us into truth. God, I pray that you would help us be the kind of people that can trust you with our lives, that can trust that that you will take care of us even if the economy of this this world doesn't take care of us. Lord, that you will defend us even if uh, we, we seem defenseless in this world. Lord, that your love will never fail us. Help us to trust in your unfailing love and in no other, Lord. God, we need help to do this. I need help. So by your grace, just remember us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.